0: Those of you who have been coming the last weeks know that my uh, retreat that I did for the whole month in February was on the theme of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. More or less repeating these phrases for a month (laughs) and living to tell the tale. (laughs) So uh, I was inspired by that practice to... Um, offer further teachings, building on what we did in January, which was three weeks on loving-kindness practice, and so we've just covered uh, two weeks uh, on compassion, on the cultivation of compassion, and today want to continue with exploring and practicing mudita, (laughs) or... Sympathetic joy or sometimes translated as appreciative joy, sometimes just translated as joy. And it is, I think literally, the literal meaning is uh, to be pleased. Mudita to be pleased to have a sense of gladness, the gladdening of the heart. And it's taken, like loving-kindness and compassion and equanimity, to have the potential to go very deeply to transform us. It's not just a nice feeling. But the Buddha speaks about what he calls the mind-deliverance of gladness, where you might say the mind and heart deliverance of gladness, that it can be a quality of our being that is connected very deeply with freedom. In fact, there is a way in which the quality of joy, I believe, expresses our deeper nature when we are in touch with that, when we're not... Scared, or startled or on guard or reactive, joy is a natural quality of our being. I think we know that to some extent from when we were children or from being with children, where that quality of joy just seems to be part of the mm, nature of their beings, And so the practice of mudita, the cultivation of joy, again, isn't so much trying to construct some new state, but is trying to touch our depths, where it's taken that joy is this fundamental uh, expression of our nature. We can ask, as I think I'll do some more next time, because I'm intending to focus on joy uh, today and most likely in three weeks, although I've been consulting with Sylvia whether she's going to, as it were, take the baton and continue with joy. Well, we'll, my my sense is that she'll probably do something uh, more reflecting her own... focus at the moment so in any case we'll continue with joy and next time I think I'll look a little bit more at joy in general how, what is joy and how in particular do we lose that joy that we often experience not always but often experience as children what happens is there a curse about becoming an adult <laughs> yes <laughs> I <see>. heads nod <laughs> And so we'll look at that, but today I want to focus a little bit more on joy as a practice linked with loving-kindness and compassion and equanimity, one of the four Brahma-Vihara, one of the four divine abodes. So that, in that sense, continues our exploration of loving-kindness and compassion. And for anyone who wasn't present at the uh, sessions on loving-kindness and compassion... Those talks are available on the web at Dharma Seed. I think many of you know, but some of you probably don't know, that you can actually listen to those talks. They would be under my name at the Dharma Seed website. And I also have a few handouts, which you could have at the end of the session if you weren't there, of the counterpart to today's handout, which has material on loving kindness and compassion. And I'll leave that right here. Which uh, you can get if you if you wish to, so it's wonderful to focus on joy. sometimes we think that Buddhist meditation or Buddhist practice is like ninety percent focusing on suffering. We sometimes get that message what's the the perhaps the core teaching is the first is the four noble truths so its So-called. And what's the first truth? There is suffering. What's the second truth? There is a cause. Sometimes express a cause of suffering, or what leads to suffering. The third truth: it's possible to go beyond suffering. The fourth: the path to the end of suffering. (laughs) And so we might sometimes think, and sometimes uh, teachers, sometimes our practice can get very serious. And sometimes, and suffering is very real. You know, being a human being is very challenging, but it's beautiful to know that um, ultimately it is this accessing of our depths that also expresses joy. For all his teaching of facing suffering, the Buddha was called the happy one. And he really taught about joy. And what I love about this teaching that we're exploring of the four divine abodes, the Brahma Vihara, is that it really is a teaching that's very subtle and that brings together attention to suffering, which we find with compassion, and attention to what's going well or beauty, which we find with joy. And in a way, this teaching of the Brahma-vihara is, is a wonderful context to practice any of these because it really teaches that we have to, in the mature unfolding of the heart and mind, but particularly what we, in Western culture, would call the heart, that we have to, in some ways, be willing to open to everything. We can't just open to the positive. If we do, our joy or our happiness will tend to be distorted. That And so this teaching of the Brahma Vihara is that there are, as it were, four stations of the opening of the heart. There is the, as it were, the natural state of our being when we're touching our depths, but actually quite accessible in very everyday life, that we have this quality of open-hearted loving-kindness. And that is the first of the Brahma Vihara. But that open-heartedness, when it meets... Difficulty or suffering or another being caught in pain and, and reactive becomes compassion. So it's as it were the natural response of the open heart to difficulty or suffering is compassion. The natural response of the heart just to general movement of life is loving kindness. It's like that story I told a few weeks ago about the Tibetan teacher Kala Rinpoche who went to the Boston Aquarium and knocked on the aquarium windows as he was walking around the aquarium and people asked him what he was doing. He said, I'm sending loving kindness to all the beings. <laughs> it was just how he happened to live, how he happened to approach everyday life. You know, uh, you know, just relating to the sharks and the dogfish and as they were, you know, if anyone's been to the Boston Aquarium, they all circle around. It's an interesting. I I used to live right next to, right near the Boston Aquarium, and go there a lot. And they just kind of circle around. He would just go in there and, you know, wish, wish well for all the, the beings in the aquarium, and and so it's just this way of responding in general. And and we 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 train for that. We, these practices are trainings. They're not demanding that we are like this. They're not. I like to say they're not production. Practices, their intention practices, we incline in that direction. And so today we're looking at the third of these, which is, as it were, the natural response of the heart when things are going well, when things, uh, when we encounter goodness, beauty, someone else's happiness, our own happiness. And so there's th- these first three, and then this fourth is the quality of equanimity which is, as it were, the natural response of of the heart and mind, in some sense, to everything, to this quality of balance that helps especially balance the first three. The first three are interesting because they're, in some ways, geared to uh, really uh, care and emotion in relation to individuals, and there's this wish that things be a certain way, may your happiness continue, May you be free of suffering and the roots of suffering. May you be happy and so forth. And then equanimity comes by and says, things are as they are. And it can be felt as somewhat cold, but it actually can be very heartfelt because mature equanimity has all of the other three qualities. And this was something which I experienced uh, so much during the month of practice that the four interpenetrate each other that we can have uh, a moment of wishing well for someone. May your happiness continue. And I might say the phrase and really feel that sense of, oh, I'm really happy that this part of your life is going well. And then when I pause a moment later, I might say, oh, and there are these other parts. (laughs) And then I might go to compassion right there. And then a moment later, I might say, okay, well, let's just be balanced with everything. And that's equanimity. You see, so there's, in doing this for a month, those kind of moments were very, very common where I would be with one of the states or it might be the other way around. I might be focusing where someone's suffering and go to compassion, but they say, but, but there are also good things happening. Muditā, <laughs> Joy arises. And then again, uh, equanimity as this uh, rudder that's so helpful. And so I think it's, for me, this very beautiful, subtle teaching that says a mature expression of any of the three or any of the four includes the others. Uh, there's this wonderful text which I have on the list by a German uh, Buddhist monk who lived in Asia for the latter part of his life named Nayana Ponika Terra. Tara means elder. And it's, it's on the list on the, as one of the resources and accessible on the web. Uh, an essay called The Four Sublime States, and he has some very eloquent ways to talk about each of the states, each of the uh, four, but also about how they interpenetrate. And this is what he said about how uh, sympathetic joy, murita, appreciative joy, helps the others. He said this, murita, her sympathetic joy, holds compassion back from being overwhelmed by the side of the world's suffering from being absorbed by it to the exclusion of everything else. It relieves the tension of mind, soothes the painful burning of the compassionate heart. It keeps compassion away from melancholic brooding without purpose, from a futile sentimentality that merely weakens and consumes mind and heart. Sympathetic joy develops compassion into active sympathy. Sympathetic joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. <laughs> he says, it is the divine smile on the face of the Buddha, a smile that persists in spite of his deep knowledge of the world's suffering, a smile that gives solace and hope, fearlessness and confidence. It's like the joy that we know, many of you who've either met or seen or whatever, watched uh, YouTube video clips of the Dalai Lama. (laughs) And one knows that there's a tremendous joy, even though at the same time he has a practice that every Tibetan refugee coming from Tibet, some of them coming from years of torture in China, uh, they come to and they tell their stories to him, and he listens, and he still maintains, he also cries a lot. And he, he's quite a, you know, quite an open being in sessions with, sometimes with Western teachers. There was one time when Western teachers talked about, uh, for example, about um, uh, gender issues and, and what the experiences, particularly of a lot of the women teachers, were. Uh, this was about, uh, I think, about 10 years ago. And... He uh, heard the stories, which again, he uh, not so much of a focus at that time, we might say, on feminist issues or issues of uh, sexism and so forth. Aware of it, but not the emphasis that we have in the West for many people. And he heard the stories and he just started crying. He heard the stories from the women's teacher and the women teachers, but there's also this beautiful joy that he has. Uh, my sister. Uh, Liz was once a waitress in Ann Arbor, Michigan, at a restaurant, and the Dalai Lama came through <laughs> <laughs> at the restaurant. And she said they were just laughing the whole time. It's a time of like a group of, uh, I think, uh, monks and nuns and other people, and they just laughed. They just were so light. And how how are how are those all held together? You don't we don't ultimately have to choose to only have our joy be at the expense of not opening to suffering. And that's what these brahma teach so beautifully. So a few more words on the nature of mudita itself as a, as a practice. It's said to be the most difficult of the four practices because it especially involves joy in the joy of others. As well as joy, I think, in our own joy. In the tradition, classically, it was limited to joy in the joy of others. So one would not do mudita or loving kindness towards ourself, towards ourselves. Uh, it's been somewhat controversial in the tradition, but I'm I would come down on the side of those who would like to develop. Uh, I keep on saying loving kindness instead of joy. They're a little bit too interpenetrated in my mind. So um, we can. uh, I I would come down on the side of those who would say we can have uh, joy for our own joy, and that it looks often looks something like gratitude. Uh, But I'll talk more about that in a moment. But so we have this uh, practice of joy in the joy of others, and I think joy at our own joy. And it's difficult because in some ways it uh, goes against the conditioning that doesn't want to have joy in the joy of others, that may, that thinks there's a limited amount of happiness, and if someone else is happy, I may not be. A kind of competitive happiness, which we, we can look at, you know. Or that, you know, that... Um, only focuses on my happiness or the happiness of those in my inner circle, but isn't so interested in the happiness of others and, particularly, not in the happiness of those with whom I have difficulties. You know, God or Goddess forbid that I should do that. You know, and so there's um, th- those are not Buddhist terms, of course, but uh, but but to we, we can have that that sense that. Um, when we do this practice, that we go against some very real tendencies, as it were, to limit the circle of our happiness to ourselves, our family, those close to us. And we know that that's very, very uh, pervasive. And in fact, we often find ourselves being happy when people we don't like are unhappy. In the German language, some of you know, they even have a word for it called schadenfreude. Schadenfreude which means happiness in the suffering of others. <laughs> I don't know what it says about the cultures, but we don't have that word in English, but they, so people actually refer to the German, but, but, that's, but we know the experience nonetheless. We know that we may wish suffering for people we don't get along with so well at times. And that's, I think, why it's said to be hard, the hardest of the four, because it goes against these very uh, deeply conditioned tendencies to seek happiness only for self or only for those close to us. And it reverses those tendencies. And so when we do the mudita practice, we we actually reverse several tendencies. We reverse the more self-centered tendency to only be interested in the happiness of those close to me or myself. And we also reverse the tendency that many of us have to focus especially on the negative, or the problem, or what's wrong in a situation, and moody. That's I think those are the two reasons why mudita to practice can be harder than the others. I think that wouldn't be universal, but for many of us, that's the case. And it, traditionally, it's held to be the hardest of these four to do because it runs up against those two issues. And I know for myself, it has a special value. I would, in Buddhist psychology, it's sometimes said that there are three personality types focusing on some of the negative tendencies which and they have their counterparts and positive tendencies but we sometimes say they're greed types they're aversion types and they're delusion types and actually in the current issue of Tricycle there's some quizzes to let you check out what type you are <laughs> you know and again they, I think the counterpart is, is uh, there are positive qualities that are counterpart but we sometimes joke uh, you know what type are you and and I, I know that for myself, of the, these are like, what, which of the three main negative tendencies do we incline towards? And for me, I would incline towards aversion. The positive qualities connected with being an aversive type is a shrewd ability to see exactly what's wrong. <laughs> which translates, when it's purified, into discriminating wisdom. You see? So each of these tendencies uh, can be reflected in positive qualities when they're transformed. So the fact that I'm aversive means I can see with a lot of clarity what the problems are in a situation. That, has, that has, can have some value when it's transformed. If I only focus on it and just blame and judge all the time, I will um, not have so many friends. <laughs> <laughs> but, but for me, I found that doing the mudita practice... It's quite wonderful, because it really goes against this tendency to uh, focus on the negative. And that, again, uh, or it may be that in relation to compassion practice, we tend to be preoccupied by suffering. We may tend to be preoccupied by the problems. And so it is very beautiful to do these practices. I find, personally, that doing the mudita practice feels like it's really doing a kind of balancing at a deep level of some very, very old conditioning, which I've worked on a lot, but it's still there to some extent. And so, uh, Murita reverses those tendencies towards self-centeredness, and it reverses the tendencies towards focusing on the negative. And it balances in that sense with uh, compassion, which does tune into what a problem is or what the suffering is. And it really balances. That's why it's so crucial, particularly for those who might be working a lot with suffering, to do a lot of joy practice. It's like I remember after 9-11, with all the issues and problems, it was so crucial. I found myself in my teaching saying, go cultivate joy. A lot of really difficult things on people's minds. Cultivate joy, be with beauty, be with nature. For myself and others, I found myself saying that. So it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful balance in that way. There's a, there's a very nice passage from the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, a chapter called, Suffering is Not Enough. <laughs> he says, life is filled with suffering, but it is also filled with many wonders, like the blue sky, the sunshine, the eyes of a baby. To suffer is not enough. We must also be in touch with the wonders of life. They are within us and all around us, everywhere, any time. You know, and I th- you know, just reflecting on people who, over the long haul, can be with suffering, I think you'll find that they have ways of uh, opening up to joy on a regular basis. You know, I think, think of the Dalai Lama. I think of Martin Luther King, who uh, talked a lot about this, talked about the ability, I think sometimes through the music in the church and so forth, that could really, in a way, Open up to the renewal, or what's that famous gospel song? There is a balm in Gilead. Some of you may know that song. That, that uh, which is really about how and where you think of even in the African American tradition, the blues are a way of being with suffering and generating joy out of suffering, partly to balance that suffering. You know, and so we find that or, or humor is a certain the same way. It's no coincidence that. Um, uh, I found out that um, 60% of the major American comedians... I think it may be changing, but a little while ago, 60% of the major American comedians were Jewish. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it's linked. It, it's, it's an antidote to you know, a lot of suffering in the, in the history. You know, and, and, there, and so we, we look for those kind of balances... So we work with the mudita practice, like the loving-kindness, as an intention practice. We say the phrases, as I was mentioning, we incline ourselves in that direction without needing to produce joy. That's, that's a crucial point that these are intention practices, which means if we're just doing the joy practice and it feels dry, that's okay because they're really inclining ourselves and to some extent we don't have control. You know, there are also other ways to cultivate joy. This is I'm talking today mostly about the formal practice and next week or next time I'll focus more on cultivating joy in general. I'll say a little bit at the end about cultivating joy because I want to invite us to focus on joy both through the Brahma Vihara practice that we've done before at the end of the sitting and also... Uh, to cultivating joy in very ordinary ways. But making a practice out of it, that could mean um, every day doing something which brings about joy as a regular practice. So you do 10 minutes. You uh, say, okay, for the next few weeks I'm going to be with the beauty of my garden for 10 minutes every day. Or I'll do gratitude practice um, 10 minutes every day. Or I'll uh, go take a walk by the ocean or in the forest uh, every day where I'll listen to music that brings me joy or I'll be in a situation which tends to bring me joy and make that a practice and you'll find that when you make that a practice it tends to work very much like the using the phrases you know, and you might want to do both. Uh, and so we say the phrases, we, we uh, do them much like the loving-kindness and compassion practices And we find that when we do them, much like those practices, it's not all a linear development of more and more joy. That these practices have the nature of being purification practices. That we'll find that other things come up as we do them, as we do the phrases. As I mentioned in the example, I'll say the phrase, I'll tune into my friend's, uh, let's say, really happiness with his or her work. And I'll really feel that happiness, and I'll feel mudita, I'll feel joy at another's joy. And then the next moment I'll say, you know, I could use some of that. My work, I don't know, when am I going to change my work? I, I feel stuck, you know, and we'll go into that. And we'll, we get to see both what's there for us, and we may see to what extent does my own situation make it difficult to tune into another's joy, or to tune into the positive, and so the practice, like loving kindness, has partly the nature of purification, meaning that, to use this language, impurities turn up. And I want to be a little cautious with that language. And if that language feels, uh, doesn't resonate, we can just say that, that some of the opposites turn up, or some, some ways that it's hard to be joyful turn up, they, they, they surface. Um, one of the ways this is expressed is in the teaching of the near enemies and the far enemies. That, uh, one the, again, one of the great subtle teachings in the Brahma Vihara is that for each of the four states, there are states which are both the opposites of the states, which sometimes turn up, and there are also states which look like the states but are not really those states. Kind of a masquerade of loving kindness or compassion. Or joy, that when we actually investigate more clearly, we see it's not quite that. So, the uh, near enemy of loving kindness is a kind of possessive love, that's attached love that really is very, is a little bit, is pretty tight and not quite so open. The near enemy of compassion is pity, which can look like compassion, but is actually distancing. And the near enemy of uh, equanimity is indifference. It can look like equanimity, but it's actually again somewhat distanced. The near enemy of mudita or sympathetic joy is a kind of overexcitedness that almost like identifies with the good stuff and gets overly excited. Sometimes we might say inflated. It's sometimes translated as exuberance, or we might say overexuberance. Or I would say maybe uh, ungrounded excitement. So. You get the, we might think of it when we really identify and, and just a lot of it has to do with the mind just spinning out in thoughts. How can I keep this going? Oh, this is so great. And not actually being with the joy. So it's a little subtle to get a sense of that, but we want to look out. And of course the far enemy, the opposite, is envy. The far, env- far enemy of sympathetic joy, her mudita, is envy. And we can expect to find these turning up when we do the practice for a while. Just like we should expect to find sometimes a sense of competition or a sense of comparison. And that's, that's quite normal. Maybe just two more things to say. One is that uh, gratitude practice, very simple practice, something that I do uh, a few times a day for just a few minutes at a time. And what's beautiful about these practices is that if you do ten minutes of this, it can really shift your consciousness. If you do it every day or ten minutes twice a day, it can really make a difference Uh, because it just reminds you and tunes us into this. And gratitude practice is, I think, a form of of mudita for self. And a very simple form that I do, I have uh, explained on the handout, it 's to reflect as much what we did during the guided meditation it 's to simply reflect on what I'm grateful for in my life and I can, you know when i 've done this um, for longer periods of time, I actually write down what I 'm grateful for in a piece of paper, I reflect on it, especially some of the bigger things and then I have that on paper, and I just take 10 minutes. I, I often would take. Uh, when I was doing this a lot, would do five or ten minutes at the beginning of a sitting and just look at that paper and reflect on it. And I also can supplement that with just reflecting on what I'm grateful for. In the moment I say, what am I grateful for? And it can be some of the bigger things or it can just be the small things, like I mentioned, of having a good night's sleep, appreciating that I'll have lunch with a friend, appreciating that I'm at Spirit Rock, appreciating that I'm... Had a chance to meditate and so forth. Could be very, very ordinary. Appreciative that someone fixed my car. <laughs> you know that sort of thing. And and we can do that practice um, as a regular practice. And so what I'd invite us to do for next time that we meet, and if we uh, this will mean three weeks. So if you want to do three weeks of joy practice, anyone interested? <laughs> Three weeks of cultivating joy, okay, we have a few a few interested. Uh, We'd be to do something like the formal practice, and you can just do it ten minutes a day, five minutes, twice a day, you know ten minutes twice a day, and do it as we did it earlier. You can do it towards someone close to you, you can do it towards self, and then sometimes you can bring it out towards others, and that 's very helpful. And another way to do the joy practice would just be to somehow connect with things that bring you joy in a very ordinary way and to say, I'm going to do one of these every day. Uh, Listen to music, be in nature, be with a close friend and say, every day I'm going to do five or ten minutes that bring me joy. You do both of those practices, you'll notice big shifts and you'll move in this direction. Even just ten minutes a day will do a lot. And so we can then compare notes. So let me close with Let me close with a a poem. Very short poem. This is from uh, an Eskimo woman shaman who talks about the way that joy is deep in our nature. And I'll, I'll close with this. It's very short. It's called The Great Sea. It's a metaphor for our being. The great sea has sent me adrift. It moves me as the weed in a great river. Earth and the great weather move me, have carried me away, and move my inward parts with joy. I'll read it one more time. The great sea has sent me adrift. It moves me as the weed in a great river. Earth and the great weather move me, have carried me away, and move my inward parts with joy. Let's just sit for a moment, and then we can have some discussion. some time for questions or discussion or observations? Spontaneous (laughs) joyful poems emerging. Could be a question about the technique of the practice or about anything said or about how to do it or your own observations. Please. So you you talked earlier about um, growing older and killing off joy. Yeah. Do you have thoughts about what happens. Yeah. It's so a great question. I was going to give a little more I'll give a short response now because I was going to look at that a little bit more uh, next time. Um, well I've I've studied children. It seems it starts at different ages, doesn't it? it starts to, when when does that spontaneity get lost? And of course different some still keep that sense of freshness and spontaneity as adults, don't, you know, and I think we all want that, you know, it's such a common theme that we have to regain something from childhood to uh, to really go deeply in our nature, you know, like, uh, was it one of the lines of Jesus, you must be like little children to enter the kingdom of God, or it's also very prominent in Lao Tzu and Chinese tradition. And so... I mean, and it's happening. Even it's intensifying, right now. That children, in the sense now, are even being further robbed of their childhood. I think we see that. That just you know, children are being made into adults at younger and younger ages. And I think it's um, I think it's quite oppressive in many ways. So there's um, I don't know. It may be um, sort of a I think I would connect it a lot with our understandings of education. You know, and what is education? and I would almost look for the roots in some of our models of what education is and what it means to be educated. And something seems to happen where we, you know, what does it mean that we put people sitting in wooden desks at age five? I think that's probably connected with it. So there's a lot of interest and movement in what kinds of education are, Keep that freshness and spontaneity. I think that would be a big piece. I think there's something also in the culture which probably doesn't value the contributions of childhood. It doesn't value it in the same way. I mean, if we if we don't have if we don't have it as adults in ourselves, how will we value and recognize it in in younger people? So there's that maybe a conflation of childishness with uh, childlike. So. I think that's a very big topic, but it's like there's this kind of certain seriousness that we get very serious, right? We have to be serious, and we we almost become, um, we have to perform. So there are a whole set of ways that spontaneity gets lost. We almost have to become like our parental authorities, whether family or school, tell us we have to be. And I think that there's, I think in all of us, and I think... Many of us, as adults, try to regain some of those qualities, whether it's the freshness and spontaneity or the um, investigation of parts of ourselves which were closed down at that age, you know, or parts of ourselves which we couldn't express because it wasn't acceptable, whether in the family structure or the cultures, cultural structure. You know, maybe our wildness or our anger or our impetuousness, our impulsivity could make uh, authorities nervous. They don't know how to handle it. So a lot of things get shut down in that way, partly from different kinds of authority, just what the culture values. And then I think just the other side of it, maybe I'm just I'm speculating a little bit here, is that it is, um, it is true that as adults we take responsibility in a sense we have to become in a sense more serious. So it's not a question of, Denying that, but how does that how can that be done in a way which can be linked with the value of child- of childhood and so it's a really big issue, isn't it? I think that when we really cultivate joy, we get in touch with our childhood. Mm-hmm. I know that when i was um last thing I'll say when I was uh studying to be a clown you know at the clown school of San Francisco, it went right back to childhood, you uh-huh. know. And it, it had that it really had that sense of freshness and spontaneity. And to do that, you know, the teacher I was working with really had a more psychological and spiritual approach, which said, You we can do this clown work and see what stands in the way of expressing ourselves and being spontaneous. And a lot of stuff stands in the way. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, I don't wanna I don't want to show that side of me. What would people think? So a great question. So can do a clown class for us <laughs> <laughs> um, some, sometime? Sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Can we have oh, a <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll write that down. <laughs> yeah, sometime. I, I did a day long here called the, uh, the Dharma and the Clown. And I brought my clown teacher here, and we co taught it. It was a a few years ago. It was a big hit. (laughs) But, yeah, and I've done it. I could bring some. I did another one outside of Spirit Rock, a four-day intensive called The Trickster, The Clown, and The Sacred, which was really quite wonderful. And I did it with another colleague who's investigated shamanic traditions a lot. It was really, it was great. So maybe we can do that sometime. I mean, it takes. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Got it. Next question. <laughs> okay. Any other questions about mudita or that practice? Please, Marty. Yeah. Uh, you talked about how all of all of the four brahma Fahas, yeah. uh, kind of interpenetrate each yeah. other. Yeah. So to me, that that would mean that as you're doing the mudita practices, you could also, after, before, or whenever it comes up, do the other practices as well. That's right. That's right. It's a great point. Did everyone hear the point that she was saying, since they interpenetrate each other, one could uh, actually do mudita practice and then do one of the others, uh, maybe right afterwards or even in the moment sometimes. And I think that's true, and and that's certainly... uh, There are quite a different number of ways to uh, understand that. I think there's a value first in really just doing it by itself so you get it down. I think there's a value in really, as it were, specializing in just doing mudita, even if you have a moment of compassion or equanimity arise, just to not to go instantly to that, just so we actually get some expertise with the practice. But then, yeah. Uh, you know, And it could be very uh, personalized. Like if I have a tendency, for example, to, let's say, focus a lot on joy at the expense of not wanting to go anywhere near suffering, I might do joy practice and then do compassion practice. Or I might do compassion practice first. And in fact doing equanimity practice, which is a more of a wisdom practice, it's actually very helpful to first do loving kindness, basically warm the heart, and then say, you know, I say, may you be happy, may I be happy, and then I say, no matter what you wish for, Donald, things are as they are. <laughs> 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 and it's actually very helpful to do both in the same session, you know, or you might, if you get really carried away with the joy and think there's identification, you could do some equanimity practice. So it's a great insight. And actually, so there's an interpenetration like that. You can actually do several of the practices in the same session. Or you can just notice how sometimes they naturally lead to each other. It's very, very interesting because it. Re- I, th- I think it's just, I-, I love the teaching because it, it really points to how we have to have all of those qualities developed for the mature expression of any of them. That mature compassion has to have all the other three or it's going to tend to be distorted. That's a beautiful, powerful teaching. You know, that if the equanimity or the wisdom factor doesn't have a lot of compassion and joy, it will tend to be distorted. That's powerful. Yeah. Maybe uh, last question. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same with the compassion and it seems like it's through that route. The route of giving or serving. Yeah. It comes back. Yeah, did everyone hear that there's there's a way with the compassion or the joy practice that in a sense we are intentionally offering something for another person. So it, it in a way goes against self-centeredness. And what you're saying is that it actually comes back, and in this case, it comes—the joy practice comes back immediately, because if we offer it, the joy, or we offer, "May your happiness continue," the practice itself is to actually tends to evoke one's own joy at another's joy. It's like if I'm, uh, I become happier because i've wished happiness for another or appreciated the happiness of another the Dalai Lama says that when we do this practice it uh radically increases our chances for happiness by 6 billion <laughs> uh-huh or at least a few to start with. (laughs) But yeah, it comes back, and I think that's what all the... It really is the deeper aspect of the teaching that self-centered happiness is limited. And there's a much deeper and powerful happiness that's more connective. I think we all know that in certain ways in our experiences of love and connection, but this is a practice which, which works on it. And which we can do in very small ways—that's the beautiful aspect of this practice. You can do any of these. You can just tune in. You go uh, to—I don't know—Whole Foods in Fairfax, or—and you uh, just—you can doing this practice. You tune in to the happiness of others. It's a kind of training of the heart and mind to tune into others' well-being. You know, go to an airport, watch people. You can go do that as a practice. Mudita practice is very powerful at airports. You know, Watch people coming in and greeting their loved ones. You can do mudita practice. Get very So you can do this in very ordinary ways. You don't have to sit on a cushion. Just do it in <coughs> watching someone who seems to exp- exp- experience happiness and tune into that. You can just do it in a small way. May your happiness... You notice someone smiling at the checkout counter. You can say, may your happiness continue. That's mudita practice. Do it in small ways. And again, it's not to say we don't tune in to the difficulties or the suffering, but it's a, it's more of a balance. Because we can also tune in to the difficulties, the suffering, the problem, in the situation. And it's really what's saying is that both are important. But this is a training, again, especially for those of us who tend to focus in on the problems or the suffering. It's a great balance. It actually helps us be way more effective in dealing with the suffering or the problems. Because our minds are more spacious, balanced, and we're not quite so um, clenched, if I could say that. So wonderful practice. Let's just sit for uh, a minute to close. And I'll invite us to reflect on what may have been helpful from the morning. And your intentions going out to continue your joy practice both in the formal practice and any of the small ways that we've mentioned during the the morning. So we close knowing that we do this practice, this investigation, this further opening of our hearts, not just for ourselves but for others, and we offer the fruits of the morning out beyond the boundaries of Spirit Rock, out into the world for the benefit and healing of all beings.